0: Welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My is Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. The Society is pleased to bring you a recording of the paper delivered by Sean Kelly and Yasmin Judd at the Society's recent conference in Hobart. Their paper, entitled Collaborative Contracting, Where Are We Now and Why? was voted by those who attended the conference as one of the top three favourite papers. So we are very pleased to bring you this recording. You can also access a copy of their paper as well as others on the Society's website, scl.org.au. While you're there, please ensure you sign up for membership if you are not already a member and look out for updates about the Society's initiatives and our 2023 National Conference. Thanks again for joining us.
1: Yaz and I are lawyers with Clayton Utz's major projects team and we're here to talk to you today about collaborative contracting models. Uh, We're not going to go into all of the detail about what the models are and um, what they entail and we might even use a few acronyms and shorthand expressions and so we apologise for that. But in the interest of time we just didn't push through. So past, present and future is the topic. The past is I'm going to provide a bit of historical context and some reviews which have already occurred present. You may be aware that uh, Yaz and I pushed out to market, including some of you, uh, a survey of industry perceptions of collaborative contracting today. Um, And Yaz is going to report on the trends and the data um, and what we can learn from that. And then the future, back to me, uh, I'm going to talk about, well, what can we untangle from all of this and what potentially does it mean going forward for collaborative contracting models? Before we dive into it, why do we want to do this? Uh, the motivation for our research. We've put up a, a somewhat pessimistic or cynical comment uh, which was uh, made anonymously in the survey. Um, and it says that you can call something collaborative, but it doesn't necessarily make it so. And one of the thoughts that that uh, sprung into our mind is this idea that what's happened over the last 30 years is an extreme diversification of models. And now we're even seeing hybridised models. And, and what that might mean is that some models are not as collaborative as others or they might not be as pure, uh, but the question is, is that necessarily a bad thing if you've got more options to pick from? And we think it's a good thing in, and we'll get to that uh, in due course. Really what we did this for, we wanted to understand uh, what were the key drivers for using collaborative models from a popularity point of view, what was hot, what was not, what was changing over time um, and the perceived performance of these models. and I'll just give a little bit of a sneak peek as to um, the conclusions we reached, which is that um, the idea of cost certainty, the, the idea of a bankable solution, which was talked about in the Q&A of the last, last session, it's recognised that cost certainty might not be there, but that might not matter. And if you unpick that, what you find is that on projects, things like innovation and improved productivity in the right context can be more important, even if you accept that there might not be cost certainty. And we think this is significant because it might actually have long-term future beneficial impacts, even if the market conditions that we're currently living in change in 10 or 15 years time, pure collaborative models might not be as popular as they are today. So that was the motivation and just a little bit of history. Here's a timeline. It all started back in 92, when Department of Defense rolled out a managing contractor standard form. I can tell you from personal experience, it's still being used today, often uh, to great effect. A few years later on an offshore gas platform, Australia had its first Alliancing experience and it really took off from there and it was used quite a bit and that led to what appeared to be an apprehension in the industry that perhaps Alliancing wasn't being used for its intended purpose and it was resulting in outcomes which were not necessarily pursuing value for money, which might explain why in the late noughties there were two reviews, one by Philip Greenham who's in the room today and another by Uh, the University of Melbourne, which really uh, dug into use of alliancing and uh, its performance from an industry perception, but also from an objective data point of view. Having looked at those earlier reviews, there were a couple of um, consistent issues which came out of them, which is there was a general acceptance that alliancing in that context and maybe collaborative contracting more broadly are, uh, are good for projects where there are imponderable risks to use a phrase uh, reported by Philip, uh, complex interfaces, things where you're going to a project and you don't really know what's going to happen, so you need a bit more flexibility. But even so, back at that stage, there was an acceptance that people were also using alliancing to get started earlier and so hopefully finish earlier, and also to attract key resources because it was a more favourable risk profile. There was also a recognition of what I discussed earlier, which is um, a lack of cost certainty. And it was posited at that time that that might get in the way of uh, hybridisation. That's what we've seen today um, proved to be not necessarily correct uh, for reasons which we'll get to. Um, But a key outcome, and this is uh, something reported again in, in Philip's review, is that industry is keenly aware that lowest cost does not necessarily mean value for money. And I think if you can grasp that and if we can go with that, that can unpick some of the contradictions which are going to become apparent when Yaz takes us through uh, the data.
2: As we mentioned, this part of our presentation is going to focus on the results that we um, were able to discover through our industry survey, which we rolled out. Um, it was an anonymous survey. We had 93 respondents, and these ranged from public and private sector employees, lawyers, engineers, consultants, contractors and subcontractors. And what's important to keep in mind is that the survey was to obtain their subjective thoughts and feelings about collaboration generally based upon their personal experience. Um, and there was, the respondents were self-selecting, so just keep that in mind throughout the rest of the data. The first question we asked was about their perceptions on the industry's use of collaborative models and had they increased, decreased, or had they stayed the same over the past <laughs> 10 years? Um, In the first graph on the left, in the green, you'll see that over 70% of people thought that their use is increasing, um, which is significant. But we can compare this with objective data on the right-hand side. We asked respondents, uh, you know, in between those two time periods, so 2011 to 2016 and 2017 to present, did you have any experience with collaborative contracting? And in the first time period, 14% said no. And that rate halved in the most recent five years. And so, it's not just a perception, what this what this data tells us is collaborative contracting is actually increasing in use. The next part, we asked the respondents to identify the main model of, if they use a collaborative model that they used in between those two time periods. And we put them side by side on the screens so, so that we could compare each model individually. And so what you'll see obviously is that ECI, or early contractor involvement has increased slightly. And this is no surprise to us because, as Sean just mentioned before, early project commencement was a key driver on the industry's uptake in the use of collaborative contracting, and this is a specific model designed for that. So that's um, you're not, not really that surprising. Um, next, we'll see that managing contractor has decreased slightly, and we're going to touch upon this further, but Sean mentioned that managing contractor contract was the first standard form introduced in 1992. But as more form models are emerging in the industry, um, perhaps it's not the only one available to the market. So that explains the slight decrease. And we'll get to this later in the presentation. Um, the next few I'll just talk about quickly are um, obviously alliancing and incentivised target costs or ITC. And these have um, had, you know, alliancing remains the most popular, but ITC has had a huge increase in recent years as well. We then wanted to find out about what specific industries um, the market was using collaborative models in. And in this question, we asked them to identify as many industry sectors that were relevant to them. And so you have to treat each of these bar graphs as an individual question. So for example, um, over 60% of our respondents said they had used a collaborative model on a road project and around 55% on rail and and so on. Uh, And what this graph tells us is that collaborative models are used in a variety of sectors transport, social, defence, energy and um, resources. And as Mark Mark just spoke about, um, especially in the renewable energy sector. Um, And, you know, road and rail are the clear standout (laughs) in this graph. Um, and I mentioned before that our respondents were self-selecting. So while it might not be, you know, the divergence between road and rail and, and the um, other sectors so that might, might not be 10 times more than resources and energy, but it's likely that road and rail are the clear standout sectors that are using collaborative models. We then further analysed this data, we wanted to get a specific idea of what industries were using which specific types of collaborative models. And so what we did is we look- we grouped these sectors together. So social would include hospitals, prisons and education, and transport, um, road, rail and air. And we we analysed the data from previous questions in our survey and what we did is we said, okay, those people who told us that they had experience working on a social sector project, what models did they answer in in previous questions? And 41% of them said they used managing contractor and the the blue or um, teal segment represents the other four available models. So it tells us that managing contractor was the most popular model for the social sector. That's significant because if we compare it to, you know, in the last five years... Only around 17% of our respondents thought that that was the main model that was used generally. So we think that's pretty significant. And we did the same exercise in the transport sector. And what it told us is that alliancing is the main model that is used in that area, um, followed by ECI, which is around half of that. And the green segment represents the three other models that I talked about before. So that's one key takeaway as well. We wanted to get an idea of the main drivers for collaborative contracting recently or over the past five, 10 years. And so we asked respondents to select the number one main driver for using a collaborative model in general, not specific to any um, model, but just in general, why would you use collaborative contracting? And as you'll see, expected complexity in, in the green is, is the most popular response we received. But I wanted to touch upon the ones I circled in red, and that's because these options, other market conditions and scope uncertainty were not available preset options in our survey that we pre-populated. Rather they were ones that respondents, you know, clicked the <laughs> other box and typed out responses to. Um, so they had to be proactive and nominate that as the number one reason to um, use a collaborative model, which we think is pretty significant. And I put two examples on the screen of other market conditions, which is answers we receive from respondents. Um, and this is a theme we'll talk about in the next part of the presentation as well, um, particularly the high demand for contractors in the current market. Um, but in relation to scope uncertainty, I just wanted to maybe explain some further that when Sean and I developed this survey, we kind of um, put scope uncertainty under the umbrella of of expected complexity. And so we didn't specifically enumerate it as an option, but perhaps if we had, we would have got more responses that chose scope uncertainty. And finally, we wanted to um, get an understanding of the effectiveness of collaborative models and what the market was experiencing when they were using them, and particularly from a cost perspective. And so we asked respondents in their personal experience using collaborative models, has the... Has the actual project value exceeded, come in under, or matched um, the budget? And as you can see from this graph, almost 70% of people say it's it's exceeded. And there are many reasons for that, um, which we'll talk about. But we think that that in itself is um, pretty significant. And to get an idea of the um, main causes of those cost overruns, we put out a number of options that respondents could select from. And as you'll see, there probably isn't a clear standout in this graph And maybe, yeah, if you take out changes to law, the rest are relatively even. Um, But I'm going to hand back to Sean to discuss this slide in relation to his personal experience using collaborative and non-collaborative models.
1: You might see a graph like that under a traditional model or under a collaborative contracting model. And when you compare it to the previous slide, which said or suggests to us that Uh, industry understands that there's not a lot of cost certainty in collaborative contracting models, which is certainly reflected in the objective data which uh, was collected by the University of Melbourne. It kind of makes you wonder, well, if there's not a lot of cost certainty and it's the same type of risk profiles anyway, which affect any project, why are they so popular? and Why are they uh, increasingly popular? And so it strikes us there has to be something else other than cost certainty, obviously. Um, And then from the, the responses we got, and from discussions we had, um, it seemed very pretty clear that it was all about uh, increased innovation. Parties can get together and work on novel solutions, come up with good solutions, uh, improved productivity. If something bad happens, one of these things, then instead of looking at the bottom line and wondering how can we fix this and how can I pass it to somebody else, people just get on with solving the problem, getting on with the job. And then in theory, the combination of those two things is um, a better asset at the end of the day. Um, We've got a couple of quotes up here which uh, we think are consistent with that but I want to focus on um, the second one and tell you a bit of an anecdote, um, an experience I had when this survey was out to market and I was at a social event at a a dinner and um, I was seated next to a gentleman who owned a subcontracting business who was working on one of the level crossing removal programs and so um, perhaps to his regret I spent the whole evening talking about this, getting his opinion. And then I sent him the survey and I forced him to do it and he sent it around his business. Um, And so that's why we got a decent selection of responses. And I I wanna report on an anonymous basis, the themes of what he said to me over dinner, which was from a subcontractor's point of view, clearly improved productivity. There's less arguing and there's more collaboration, not surprising, but he said, it's real like it actually impacts who goes to meetings, what they say at meetings and what outcomes you get. He said that it permeated all levels of the project and it changed mindsets fundamentally. Um, But then he said something at the end which um, was quite interesting. He said he thought that it was all largely because of a hot market and market pressures and a, a need to get resources. And he expressed the view to me that, in 10 years time, if the market conditions weren't the same, then the contracting conditions won't remain the same. But he did confirm that at the end of the day, you got great results, great assets. Just to test that, we went out to some of our friends um, at the coalface just to try and see that uh, we did indeed get better assets using this. And what we've got here are three examples on this slide and the next two of um, projects which used collaborative models and um, based upon the people who did the job say it was because of uh, the ability to um, not be focused on cost pressures um, and be innovative and collaborate that in difficult and novel circumstances, for example, using this form of crane, which previously had only been used on viaducts in open terrain, they've now done it in in a suburban Melbourne. And um, examples like that, which the people who actually built the thing said that couldn't have been done otherwise. Here's another example. This is a a U-troff beam on an an above ground rail. I was lucky enough to work on a project which involved the first use of u trough That has been rolled out on other projects um, around Australia and it was that level of innovation and and that desire for a different type of value for money, which they were seeking and they were able to seek because of the model that they used. And then just to proof of the pudding, here's a subsequent example of, a a rail construction which used that new form of construction technique to great effect. We've selected this photo because you can see that they've done this piece of construction over a a very significant and active road. And so this is really the key point. It's building things in difficult environments where anything could go wrong and needing that flexibility to get the job done and um, the added benefit of this particular station being the first of its kind to achieve a certain green rating. So. Uh, What they tell us is true. What does it mean for the future? Well, as we already know, um, NEC is sponsoring this uh, conference and um, the reason for that is that NEC 4 has released a standard form alliance contract. FIDIC is looking to do something similar. They've gone out to market. There's a survey. um, I understand, but I'm willing to be corrected by people who know better, that they still haven't um, identified a particular model but um, it's under consideration. So let's watch this space. Another element of the future, I, I'm not sure if uh, Paula Gerber and Marco Miska are in this particular room, but this is something that they spoke about um, a few years ago. This idea that collaborative contracting is particularly useful in circumstances where you take a big project and you break it down into component parts, and then you can adopt a horses for courses approach. And this is just linked back to something I said at the start in that first quote, The idea that there are different models um, and there are hybridised models and there are models which are bespoke might mean or will mean that some of those models are not pure, but maybe it means that there's a better outcome because in the future you can use um, slightly less pure models more frequently in different scenarios and maybe that's a net benefit. Just to pick up on that point and the notion that my friend at the dinner party said that in 10 years time if the market's different so will the contracts be. Um, a lot of people in our survey spoke about collaborative D&C, which is not really a, a collaborative model per se. It's, it's D&C, but augmented. But if you think about it from this perspective, if before 1992 we are here on the pendulum and then now we've swung over here on the pendulum, and let's say in 5, 10, 15 years' time the market's different and the pendulum's swing back, If because of this bespoke nuance that we can develop based upon our lived experience over the last 30 years, the pendulum only goes to here, is that a net outcome, a net benefit outcome? Potentially it is. Um, So I want to talk a little bit, a couple of minutes about collaborative DNC, just to give you an idea. Um, it's currently being rolled out on the ARTC inland rail, and I'll just give you a list of a couple of characteristics. I've been told by a colleague that you can almost pick and choose. pick your own poison, what you add into a DNC contract to make it more collaborative. For example, they'll all have a framework clause where uh, the parties agree to work together and to cooperate, et cetera. Um, You can include additional relief events as the parties uh, negotiate. There was something which I found interesting, which is a a collaborative claims process. So ordinarily under a DNC, you might put in a claim, it gets determined either by the principal or the super. If the parties don't go what they want, you might end up in a dispute. But in, under these scenarios, a claim comes in and then there's a contractually required um, best endeavours obligation to go off and talk about it and try to negotiate an outcome. And only if that doesn't work, then you go back to what would be a more standard D&C arrangement where a determination gets made and then you deal with the consequences. And then the other thing amongst others that you can add to a, a DNC and c contract is um a KRA arrangement key results area where um, you can select certain things whether it's early completion or health and safety etc where if the contractor achieves them they get um, financial outcomes and so that's just ways you can turn a DNC into a more um, collaborative type of model which reflects what we may consider to be the beneficial outcomes of the models we've experienced over the last 30 years.